John. And what John says in those first lines of the 16th verse is so key to our spiritual maturity. Knowing and believing that God loves us. Crowder's hook line for the song, God really loves us. And because he does, it has direct influence on the way that we live our lives. And that's what John is trying to get across as he's writing this letter to the church in Asia Minor in the end of the first century. God is love. Whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. We read about a couple meeting with their pastor in preparation for the wedding. The prospective groom was a bit nervous on this particular meeting, and he finally blurts out to the pastor, I would like to see a copy of the wedding vows. The pastor hands him a book, and the young man carefully read everything that he and she would be saying to one another during this ceremony. After he read the vows, he hands the book back to the pastor and said, this will not do. What's the problem? And he said something that I've had a couple of rooms say in my office. He said, it doesn't say anywhere that she's supposed to obey me. Now, his fiance responded far different than the fiance sitting in my office when those guys made that comment. She looked at him and said, Honey, it's okay. The word obey doesn't have to be written in the book, it's already written in my heart. The word obey doesn't have to be written in the book. It's already written in my heart. That's exactly what John is going to point out to us in this section of Scripture that we're going to read in just a moment. As we've been making our way through this message, we keep coming back to the command to love one another. And that ability to love one another stems and comes from our love to God and God's love to us. It is in loving the Father with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength that I find the power and the impetus to love my neighbor. God loves us. So reading verse 17, and we're going to read through verse 5 of of the fifth chapter. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Verse 1 of chapter 5, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ had been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. 
By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? In this section, there's a word that appears several times. And that's that word, perfect. God's plan is to perfect his love in us. God's plan is to perfect his love in us. Verse 17 said, by this is love perfected within us, or with us. Reading it from the NIV, in this way, love is made complete among us. It's made complete. That word perfected in the ESV, in the New American Standard, in the New Living Translation, has the connotation of completeness or wholeness or maturity. Completeness, wholeness, or maturity. We read in other places in Scripture, like in, in Peter's letter, he said that, that we are to grow in, in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. John wants us to know that we are to grow in our love for God, that our love would become mature, our love would be complete as we respond to the way the Father loves us. At the core of being a follower of Jesus Christ, we should continually be growing in our understanding of God's love for us and our response of love back to the Father. Remember, Jesus said all the law and all the prophets could be summed up with love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. St. Augustine is the one who gets credit for making this statement. I put it on the, on the screen. It's not in your notes. Love God and do whatever you please. For the soul trained in love to God will do nothing to offend the one who is beloved. He said, love God and do whatever you please. And, and if you leave that alone, that could be you know, a license to do what? But that's not a license. What he's saying, for the soul trained in love to God will do nothing to offend the one who is beloved. We read in the fifth chapter, we show our love by your obedience. And we'll eventually get to that. In a world where there are so many voices, so many things, and so many relationships that are vying for our heart. We need to be on guard that we do everything we can to mature in our love for God. Our world is desperate for people who love God more than they love anything else. I wrote this note, I didn't put it in your notes. Mature Christian love is the number one need among God's people. Mature Christian love. 
we have a tendency, denominations divide up over particular pet doctrines. Some people, it's all about holiness. Some people, it's all about grace. Some people, it's all about what you sing or what you don't sing, or whether you have music, musical instruments or don't have musical instruments. What we need is mature Christian love in God's people. Because the world needs love, real love, God's love, and it needs to flow through us. So how do we know if our love is maturing? How do we know if we're becoming complete? In these verses that we've read, in these sections, in the end of chapter 4, in the verse five verses of chapter 5, the Apostle John gives us at least four evidences that something is happening toward the goal of completeness. First one is this. We'll have a holy confidence. A holy confidence. And I put a, the word holy in front of that confidence on purpose. By this is love perfected in us, verse 17, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in the world. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fear has not been perfected in love. We return to this passage. We talked about it two weeks ago. The word fear. But I want to read it from the King James. I want to put another word in there without fear. It says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love cast out fear, because fear hath torment. Fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. Fear and John is writing to believers. He's writing to people who are part of the church of Jesus Christ. It is an unfortunate reality that far too many believers have not matured in their understanding that God really loves us. God really loves us. And their love for him has not matured to the point that they are not living in fear. A fear that causes them some kind of torment to their mind and soul. John says as we mature in love, we have confidence. We have confidence. And that confidence, he means a boldness. A boldness. And the reason I put a holy confidence is I wanted to see it's not there. We're not talking about the brazen or brash boldness. For example, when we were teenagers, we thought we were invincible, and we did things, and some of you did more things than I did because you were bold, more bold than I was, and did damage to your body because you thought you were invincible. Not talking about that kind of boldness or confidence. We're talking about a well-grounded boldness, a well a holy confidence. The, same, the kind of confidence where Hebrews says, the writer of Hebrews said, we come boldly into the presence of God. Not arrogantly. 
Not arrogantly, but we boldly come with humility because realizing God loves us, he has opened up the way that we can come before him and lay every one of our needs before him without fear or trepidation. I told you a couple of weeks ago that the word for fear here in this, uh, the Greek word is the root word for our word phobia. Phobia. There's all kinds of phobias. You can Google it, and there's hundreds of them. Starting with the letter A, acrophobia is the fear of heights. Areophobia is fear of flying. Amaxophobia is fear of driving. Aquaphobia is the fear of the water. Astrophobia is fear of storms. Claustrophobia The fear of being in tight places or confined. How many have had dental phobia? You don't want to see the dentist. (laughs) Hemophobia is the fear of blood. Trypanophobia, the fear of needles or injections. John is talking about a particular phobia. And we'll just use the Greek, the Greek word in front of this. Crisisphobia is the fear of judgment. Crisisphobia, the fear of judgment. First time that John mentions this is in chapter 2. 1 John 2:28. Now little children abide in him, so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him, in shame at his coming. That we not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Anyone ever hear those words when you were growing up? Wait until your father gets home. Now I suppose there's more than one way to hear those words in your, in your hear, ear. But But how many of you, when you heard those words, immediately fear came to your mind? And you watched the clock trying to anticipate when he would arrive so you could be as scarce as a $3 bill. Fear. Fear. Shrinking away. There was a fear of punishment. Even though you deserved it, you did not want it. Fear is the beginning of torment. I have been with a child who had to go to the doctor to get shots required to attend public school. And they had this trypanophobia, the fear of needles. I don't know that they could ever remember having a shot before. But there was something in their head that said, I'm going to die if they stick that needle in my arm. It took three of us to hold this individual down long enough for the doctor to be able. And that probably made the shot hurt a lot more, the struggle. But that anticipation of something that was coming because they didn't know what was going to happen. Jesus is coming again. 
Amen? For those who've matured in their love for the Father, we come with a holy confidence. You see, I can be confident on the day of judgment because my past has already been judged. I can be confident on the day of judgment because my past has already been judged. Unfortunately, there's people who've asked Jesus Christ to be the Lord of their life who, who are not living with that kind of confidence. The things that they have done in the past continue to haunt them today. There's a voice that keeps telling them, you're unworthy. What you did is the unpardonable sin. What you did is unforgivable. That is the enemy who comes to accuse us and to lie to us. The enemy will put doubt in your mind. God loves the pastor. I'm sure he loves the pastor. But God clearly can't love me. But you need to know that God really loves us. God really loves us. I will be able to welcome the day of judgment because I understand God loves me and I love him and I know who I am in the light of Jesus Christ. You see, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The old has passed away. The new has come. Going down to the 21st verse in that same chapter. How was it made new? For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Who's the he? God made, who's the him? Jesus. To be sin. So that all of the judgment against sin could be placed on him. So you and I could be made a new creature and our sins could be forgiven. Our sins could be washed away by the blood he shed. The blood that we, we thank the Lord for this morning in the communion service. I love the third verse of Spafford's hymn, It Is Well. My sin... Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh my soul. John 5, 24 says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Going back to 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The way we read the scripture, the way we understand the scripture. When I became born again by the power of God, I was clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The sins were blotted out on the book where my name is in the book of life. No sins. Not because I never sinned, but because Jesus took the judgment. And it does not need to be judged again. As long as I am walking in the light 
of the fellowship with Jesus Christ. Because it says, as he is, so are we in this world. Right now I am covered in God's sight with the righteousness of Jesus. I am seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I am a child of God, adopted into the forever family. And as I walk in openness before him, in obedience to his word, the blood continually cleanses me from sin. 1 John 1, 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. I want to do a, a, a sidebar in the message this morning. Because I want to talk a little bit more about the day of judgment. And there's a whole lot of things I don't understand, but the, there are some things that are very clear about the day of judgment in the Scripture. Hebrews 9.27 tells us this, As just as is it appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. There is going to be a final judgment day for the living and the dead. There will be a final judgment day for the living and the dead. Jesus said in Matthew 25, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations. He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. There will be a day, a judgment day, when we stand before God. Jude put it this way. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. John, in his vision of the revelation of Jesus Christ, writes in the 20th chapter, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who seated on, was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. For time's sake, down to verse 15. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The judgment day for the unsaved will be the worst day they've ever experienced. And it will last forever. On the other side of the coin, if you have been born again, abiding in the Father, and the Father abiding in you, and you abiding in His love, it will be the beginning of the best day that you've ever had that will last forever. If your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, 
because you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Your sins have been blotted out forever. You will hear, Jesus said, you will hear these words, Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. But the verdict that will be rendered for those who did not receive the gift of salvation will be everlasting punishment in the lake of fire that never goes out. Paul, Peter, James, the writers of the New Testament, they all lived their life with that anticipation. 2 Corinthians 5.10, Paul writes, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what he's due for what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 27, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he's done. Paul, writing to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Talking about the day of judgment, each one's work will become manifest for the day, capital D, the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And that fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though himself will be saved, but only as through fire. I remind you again, we are not saved by works. We are saved by grace through faith. Amen? Amen. Ephesians chapter 2. No one is saved by works, lest they should boast. There's not going to be any bragging in heaven. No matter how good you were, in God's sight, you are a sinner lost and condemned until you invite Jesus Christ to be your righteousness. We're not saved by our works. We're saved by grace. However, we will be rewarded for our works if we've been born again. That's important. There's lots of good people who've done lots of good works who will not receive a reward because they did not receive Jesus Christ. I've sat across the table from too many families preparing for a funeral and they said, they have to go to heaven, they're a good person. Oh, I wish that were true. You have to have faith in Jesus Christ. And those who have faith in Jesus Christ will be rewarded for our works. We won't face judgment, but our works will be tested. Jesus said, some very important words. In the Sermon on the Mount, being a follower of Christ is more than just saying a prayer. It all starts with a prayer, but it has to go beyond a prayer. Matthew 7, 21 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. That comes back to obey and that's one of the points of evidence. And we're not going to get to it today. But 
we must walk in the love of God. And when we walk in the love of God, we will stand before God with this confidence, my sins are under the blood, heaven is my eternal home, and I will be rewarded for the works that I have done. Going back to, to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 12, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. Now he's talking about some false teachers building on the, you know, trying to build a gospel. But he talks about we need to build it on the, on the true gospel, the gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw. And then verse 13 is the one where he talks about our works will be tested by fire. Here's what I believe the scripture teaches. We will be rewarded for the works we did according to the will of the Father. The works that I did that the Father wanted me to do, those will be that, that, that's the gold, that's the silver. If I'm walking in obedience to the Lord, I will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. We all have some works that are going to be burned up. The works of self-service, self-indulgence, those things will be consumed. They won't cost us our salvation, providing we're walking and openness before the Lord, but we don't get any rewards for being selfish. We'll be rewarded for doing what the Father has asked us to do. We'll be rewarded for loving God and loving people. We will be rewarded for loving God and for loving people. There's a scripture that says you can't give a cup of cold water that you're not going to be rewarded for. When I'm talking about the day of judgment, I, I really hope that this is not creating intimidation and fear in you. I'm trying to help you see that we can come boldly. If fear and trepidation and, and terror comes to your mind, that means you need to get totally right with Jesus this morning and understand that he loves you and he died for you and that your sins can be forgiven, that you can have a holy confidence. I'm not trying to create fear that, am I doing the right works? Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 25 to the people on the right? When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me to drink. When I was naked, you gave me clothes. When I was in prison, you visited me. And they said, Lord, when did we do these things? It wasn't a matter that they were going out checking off a checklist. I'm doing these works to get rewarded. In this parable, Jesus is saying, when you're just loving people and loving God, inasmuch as you did it to the least of these, you did it to me will be rewarded for loving God and for loving people with that same love that God has put into our hearts. We will be rewarded according to the way that we live out the great commandment. The great commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Love being perfected within us gives us confidence 
on Friday morning, I was honored to officiate the memorial service for a local man at, at the Willamette National Cemetery, a man that I have known for several years because of when he worked at Baker Lumber and delivered product here when we were building the church and other places that I worked on, on construction projects. And he was also a man who was part of uh, a Bible study that Victor Hendrickson's been having for several years, and uh, it was part of our 12-step um, program, and COVID came, and they continued to meet uh, one day a week. And this guy had been meeting with them for the past year. Agent Orange from being in Vietnam is what cost him his life. Um, but I sat with his daughter and, and his wife a week ago, and his daughter says to me, Dad said, I'm ready to go whenever my Lord calls me home. He had this confidence, this confidence, that when I leave this body, I'm going to be with my Lord. He was not afraid of the judgment that was going to come because sins had already been judged. He was going with confidence to receive what a reward he's going to receive. A few days ago, my uncle Manford, 92 years old, still wanting to live. When we came home from Montana, he says to Rick, um, you guys go next year, I'm going with you. He was in the hospital. The doctors had already told him his body was shutting down. But when it came to the point when the doctor really laid it out, and he said to his daughters, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go. We asked him if he was ready to go. And with confidence, I'm ready to go. I have a peace. You know what? You're not ready to live until you're ready to die. We're not ready to live until we have that peace. God loves me. I love God. My sins have been washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ. Are you ready today? Do you have that confidence if this is your last day that you're going to stand in His presence and He's going to say, welcome home? It starts with a prayer. It starts with a prayer. Oh, that we would live with the confidence that Paul had when he wrote the epistle of Romans. When he comes down to the last part of what we call chapter 8, and I know it's in the middle of his letter, but we call it the end of the chapter. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing in creation, present or future, can come between us and God's love. Now the perfecting of our love of God in our lives is usually a matter of several stages. I'm not sure that we were smart enough to have fear before we got saved. We all thought we were pretty good. But when we got saved, we probably went through those moments of vacillating, does God really love me? 
He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. That's because Satan, the accuser, was constantly reminding us of our past sins. But the more mature we are in our love for God, the greater our confidence becomes, I am loved by the God of all heaven, and he lives in me. And this confidence has positive results in our lives, and we are able, number two, to live a life of honesty. To live a life of honesty. Verse 20 said this in chapter 4, If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the command we have for him, Whoever loves God must also love his brother. If anyone says, how many times have we read that in 1 John? I underlined at least six times with my highlighter. If anyone says, and each time we read, if anyone says, it is a warning against lying. It is a warning against deceiving ourselves. A warning against pretending to be one thing when we're really something different. It's a warning. You see, fear and pretense go together. Fear and pretense go together. How often do kids put on a pretense, an effort to avoid punishment for something they've done wrong? To my mind comes the family circle cartoon. And every once in a while in that little cartoon, you'll see a little ghost. As the kids are saying, not me, it's not me, not me. How often do adults put on pretense for fear of what their peers will think about them? The first sin brought fear and pretense into a place of perfection. When Eve ate the fruit and Adam agreed to eat the fruit with her and they suddenly realized they were naked, what was the first thing they did? They made coverings to cover their nakedness and then they hid. Adam, where are you? I don't know how many times God said it. Adam, where are you? When Adam realized, how can we hide from the omnipresent one? And he had to confess, he had to admit, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Fear and pretense. Unfortunately, I have watched immature Christians who for one reason or another do not grow in their love for God think that they have to impress other people by putting on an outward show of being close to God when they're in a gathering such as this. But it's all show for men. It's as shallow as the seed that is planted on the concrete in Jesus' parable. John said these people uh, are living in a kind of fear and they become liars. Think about the story in the book of Acts, chapter 5. A married couple 
we're so impressed by what Barnabas did. Barnabas, uh, the people are, because Jews are persecuting Christians already, many of them have lost employment, don't have a source of food because they've been dis- excommunicated from their families. So Barnabas has a piece of property he sells, and he brings all the proceeds to the apostles and said, here, distribute this among those in need, especially the widows. Have nobody to take care of them. Ananias and Sapphira, they're impressed by what Barnabas does, and so they have a piece of property that they can sell. But they conspire between the two of them. Oh, man, we got a good price for this. We'll still look pretty spiritual if we just give 50% of this. We don't have to tell anybody else. We'll just make it look like we're like Barnabas. (coughs) Remember the story? Ananias brings his portion to Peter. We sold some property. Here's the proceeds. And Peter says, why did you lie to the Holy Spirit? And the guy drops dead. His wife does the same thing and carries them out. They were trying to put on a face, pretense. God struck them dead for their hypocrisy. Peter said, God didn't need all your money. If he just told the truth, it'd be okay. But putting on a pretense because of fear. Pretending is one of the favorite activities of children. It's part of growing up, isn't it? Imagination. There are people who were sincerely worried about my son, Tony, when he was five or six years old. I mean, they came and talked to me, relatives. We were really concerned about him. He would go out to play. We lived out here in west of town. And, and he would come back in, and he would, he would have this story of how he and Reggie Jackson and the Yankees had beat somebody that day. Um, and he told it as absolute truth. And his imagination was very vivid and lively. And people thought he was a little off his rocker. And he's not here to defend himself this morning. That's okay when you're a kid. Someone maturing in their love for God must know themselves and be themselves, fulfilling the purposes for which Christ saved them. I'll run that by you again so you can fill in the blank. Someone maturing in their love for God must know themselves and be themselves, fulfilling the purposes for which Christ saved them. Their lives, our lives, must be marked by honesty. And if we are maturing in our love for God and understanding God's love for us, His love being perfected in us, we are free to live honest before God. James said this in James chapter 1, verse 22, Be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourself. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. He looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the, here's this word perfect, the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Spiritual honesty brings peace and power 
to the person who practices it. Spiritual honesty brings peace and power to the person who practices it. You know, the thing about being honest is you don't have to keep a record of your lies and who you told them to and all the energy that's used up trying to remember those things. Living in honesty is blessed by fellowship with God and others. Again, 1 John 1, 7 says, If we walk in the light as He is the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Love and truth go together. In fact, they must go together. They must go together. Love and truth. There was a pastor who was once asked, how large is your congregation? And he responded to these, this person he just met, oh, about a thousand people. The guy says, wow, that must be a lot of people to have to please. And the pastor replied, let me assure you, my friend, I've never tried to please all my members or even some of them. I aim to please only one person, and that's Jesus Christ. And if I'm right with him, then everything should be right between me and my people. We know that we are maturing in love for God when we live in the confidence God loves me and accepts me into his forever family and I do not need to impress anyone else. We know we're maturing in love when we live in the confidence God loves me and he accepts me in his forever family. And I do not need to impress anyone else. Max Lucado wrote a book, The Applause of Heaven, learning how to live for the applause of one, to hear the Father say, well done, good and faithful servant. Because I know God loves me, I'm free to love others. Because I know God loves me, I'm free to love others. Of course, we ended the service with a couple weeks in a row. I am loved. I am loved. I can risk loving you. For the one who knows me best loves me most. I am loved. You are loved. Won't you please take my hand? We are free to love each other. We are loved. Honesty can be the first step to receiving healing. Honesty can be the first step to receiving healing. James chapter 5, verse 13 says this, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who's sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he will for be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another, pray for one another, that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. I'm going to stop the message this morning, and I ended up putting part one on your notes. It was not my intention when I started preparing the message. There's two more points. But for two reasons. 
You know, by giving you two of the four evidences. The most pragmatic reason is it will take me way beyond <clears throat> what our American minds and behinds are accustomed to sitting on Sunday morning, if I continue the message. The second reason is more on a spiritual level and the fact that it has something to do with embracing this message for our lives. This moment has been ordained by God this morning to set some people free from fear. First of all, from the fear of the day of judgment. That fear of standing before God. Fear is dispelled when I'm honest with God and confess, I know that I'm a sinner, but by faith I believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins and God raised him from the dead. And I want you to be the Lord of my life. Forgive me of my past. Walk with me in my present so that I can be with you in the future. It starts with a moment of prayer. Fear is dispelled when I'm honest with God and confess. For someone this morning, that means to quit making excuses for the way you are and stop living as a victim of your past. He said, if you confess, God is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us. He said, if we confess to each other, to one another and pray for one another, that there'll be healing. Healing. And I think this word healing goes way beyond the physical. I think that's included, but the healing of my emotions, my spirit man, to walk in the freedom to walk in the freedom. Somebody today needs to say to somebody, I haven't been honest with God, myself, or people. I need His forgiveness and I grace. Will you pray with me today for God's power to be released and the promise of the Word is that will happen. We're going to stand and we're going to declare I am who you say I am. And then we're going to close in prayer in just a few moments. Would you stand with me as we sing together?